Welcome to Almost Here, Round the Corner of Future Technology podcasts with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies poised to transform our lives for better or worse are the focus of this podcast. Almost Here means these technologies are now here and starting to be used, or just around the corner, from Bitcoin to artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech Podcast. My guest is Teddy Ort. He's a graduate student and PhD candidate at MIT, and he works in the Distributed Robotics Laboratory, and we're going to be talking about his uh, research there. So, Teddy, how are you doing? Hey, Richard. Thank you so much for having me. I'm yeah. doing well. Yeah, tell me about what you're working on. So, I'm a currently a, a graduate student at, at CSAIL, which is a computer science and artificial intelligence lab at MIT, and my current project is, is as part of the uh, Toyota CSAIL Joint Research project for autonomous vehicles, uh, where our goal is to build the algorithm and the AI technology necessary uh, to be able to develop a car that cannot be the cause of a motor vehicle accident. Hmm. That can't be the cause of a motor that, vehicle accident? That cannot, exactly. So the, the, the car should, be, should have enough uh, AI and enough sensors to be able to detect the future uh, possibility of an accident and take whatever actions necessary to avoid it. Well, I mean, it sounds like 100% no accidents. Uh, do you think that's reasonable, or is it, you know, if you get, like, what's the average average accident rate for a human being? Maybe being uh, half of that or a third of that is a more realistic goal, or what do you think? Yeah, that, that's a very interesting question, uh, because I think people actually compare self-driving cars to, to human drivers, of course, all the time. But it, it's interesting is that, you know, humans and and self-driving cars tend to have very different failure modes. So if you look at, at human accidents, you know, it's sadly there's there's like some 3,000 or so motor vehicle deaths uh, globally every single day. And and 90% or more of those can be attributed to human error, where usually uh, the culprit is, is some kind of a distracted driving or impaired driving, uh, such as drugs or alcohol, or falling asleep. And these are things that I think we can guarantee 100% of the time will never happen. My self-driving car will never drive junk. Right. So in that sense, I think going going for completely eliminating accidents seems very feasible. Uh, but of course, on the other hand, there are other failure modes that humans don't suffer from that the self-driving cars do. So that, that's what makes the problem so difficult because we do have to deal with the issues where self-driving cars are susceptible to confusion for example, from sensors, occlusions, or, or weather, things like that, uh, where humans excel at are actually extremely good at being able to deal mm. with those, those types of problems. Well, I mean, we already have somewhat of a limited hybrid. You, know, you have anti-lock brakes. Um, you have cruise control. You know, Tesla has uh, limited uh, autonomy, et cetera. So, I mean, we're starting to have hybrids. We've had some hybrids for a while. And uh, do you think the end goal is 100% purely autonomous driving, where people could just lay back and sleep or text, or is it going to always have to be where someone sits in the driver's seat It kind of is there in case a disaster strikes? Yeah, absolutely. So for the long term, I definitely think fully autonomous end-to-end driving is a realistic goal. Um, but of course, on the way there, we have to be careful to avoid you know, accidents or trying to put the technology out too early before it's ready. And that, you know, for that type of situation, uh, assisted driving where you have anti-lock brakes, is a really great solution because it allows you to do, to, you know, to keep to like a do no harm mantra, where the vehicle can, you know, only intervene when it's very sure, 
in order to try to prevent an accident, uh, but allow the human to do the driving the rest of the time. Yeah, like I drive a Subaru and it has like a forward-facing camera and when it calculates that the um, the distance between me and the car in front of me is closing too fast, it goes, dee, 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 you know, or if yeah, I'm... That's, sit- that's really great. Yeah, I'm, or if I'm at a light and the car in front of me moves and I don't see it, it goes, beep, beep, and so let me know the car has moved. I mean, just, you know, lane departure and all those other stuff. So it's, Exactly. You know, some stuff there. And many so of these technologies the, are just the, the beginnings of, of, you know, technologies that can start taking more and more action. For example, there are already few cars on the road that will, you know, instead of just sounding an alarm, will actually apply the brake or even apply corrective mm. steering, right, to, to, to prevent lane departure. Yeah, actually, you have that, too, when I back up. When I get too close to another car, it, it makes a noise, and then it goes on the brake. If you really are gonna, if it really thinks you're gonna crash into something, and it's actually saved me once or twice from bumping a car. So it's, uh, it is useful, you know. That's amazing, is. and it seems like a really great path forward to getting this technology out there as soon as possible, because you know these these accidents happen every day. So there is there is some type of time pressure to actually get these technologies out there and start using them to prevent these needless accidents. Uh, but of course. You know, you don't want to do more harm than good. Well, I've heard that, you know, I don't know, Google's cars have driven autonomously for millions of miles with someone sitting in the front seat. And Tesla probably has millions of miles of uh, autonomous driving with the person sitting there. I mean, wh- where are we at technologically? You know, how come uh, all car companies don't have autonomous vehicles and they're not in use yet? What's Where's the holdback right now? Yeah, it's true. There's been, there's been some really amazing results. Uh, from several of the of these companies, like you're talking about Uber and Tesla and Google, and I guess I can't speak for any uh, particular one because obviously I'm not privy to all of their test data. But yeah. you know, I think if you're wondering why why is this not already in my front door, you need to look carefully at where are these vehicles driving, where are these tests being done, uh, how difficult are the conditions, whether they're weather conditions or traffic conditions, uh, and you know the problem certainly becomes much more difficult when you go out from the structured environments of a city that a tech company has spent, you know, many millions of dollars and many hours labeling and building detailed 3D maps of these areas. And then you contrast that with what happens if you take a self-driving car out into the middle of some rural environment, which is unstructured. There may not even be lane markings. There there may not be buildings and street signs and permanent physical structures. And then you don't have a map from that area because you've got, now millions of miles of roads with, with few people on them. So it would be very difficult to build and maintain these maps. And then the problem becomes much more difficult. And I think issues like that are actually what, you know, the reason that these cars are not out already. Well, why not marry uh, autonomous driving to GPS and to maps of cities? You know, I, I know from like the 80-20 rule, the Pareto rule, that, you know, uh, certain roads in a city are heavily traveled and there's a whole bunch that are rarely traveled. So why not have a system where my car, you know, says autonomous available, you know, because I'm on a road that's clearly marked and all that, and I can turn it on. And then if I'm getting close to home and I'm going onto my side streets, they could say, you know, warning, autonomous, unavailable, you know, please take control. And I take control for the roads that maybe are like country roads or something. Why can't we do that and still get 80% autonomous when we want it, you know? So that's like, I think that is a great solution, and it's, it's probably somewhere that we're heading in. Sometimes that's referred to as level four autonomy, which is uh, a level of autonomy where a vehicle is able to do the entire driving path, but only in certain situations, only either in certain areas or in certain weather conditions. And then mm-hmm. it has to expect that the human is going to take back control if the, those conditions change. 
Uh, but right. you know, the big challenge with that solution is it turns out to be very difficult to do a handoff. It's you know, as we've seen in the news, there has been situations where the human was expected to do the handoff, and then the person was not paying attention or you know wasn't alert. And it's very hard for a person to remain alert without doing anything for many hours. The, the research has shown that that's, that's a very difficult thing to ask a human to do, to just sort of look out the window, not become distracted, and be there if the car needs you. So that's a big challenge to deal with with that solution, just how do you hand off control mm. to the human if, you, if the machine can no longer safely drive? Probably the car would have to pull over if the person doesn't respond in a certain amount of time, you know. I mean, I guess it would limit the autonomy a little bit more. Um, but let's say, you know, again, you're on a street that's that's marked clearly and you're about to turn off into another one. You know, the car would, I guess, would have to say, hey, take over. And if you don't respond, it would have to pull over until you do respond. You know, just like you're on a train. Next stop is Deer Park. You don't get off, you miss it. But they remind you. And, you know, I guess you could do other things with the car to really remind the person, you know, loud, high sound, I don't know, something, you know, slap them in the face. Yeah, I mean, that could be a solution. There's, of course, there's always certain challenges. I mean, if the if it's purely geographic, the constraints, that, that is something the car could always make sure that it has, it doesn't go somewhere where it doesn't have a safe place to stop if it needs to do a handoff. Uh, but, of mm. course, if the constraints are weather-related, that might be more difficult to always ensure yeah, I that could see you know, there's a safe way to hand back control. Yeah, I could see, like, newer cities, cities that are more grids, cities that are sunny all the time, like probably Phoenix, Arizona is a great place for these things to operate. The weather is almost always the same, but like Buffalo, New York or Colorado or something might be different because the weather Absolutely. changes a lot. Yeah, or Boston, so I can see, yeah. I am. Mm-hmm. Yes. You know, we have, we have very, very difficult streets, uh, very aggressive drivers, and of course the Boston winter is very different than sunny California. So what is it that, uh, you are you working on precisely this part, or what what area of autonomous driving are you working on? What's what's your challenge? So my research focuses on bringing the the self-driving technology to rural areas where we where we assume that we're not going to have a detailed map of the area in advance. Hmm. So what kind of um, so cars use what like lane markers? They use road signs. They use a bunch of things to figure out where they are. What's what do you do on country roads? Like what do you look for to help uh, allow the car to drive? Yeah, exactly. So on country roads, we, we can't really assume we're going to have lane markers because, you know, there are many roads that don't have clear markers, especially in, in rural environments. It turns out, uh, statistically, there's over 60% of the roads uh, in the U.S. are not marked. So these, wow. these, these roads are everywhere once you get out of the cities. And so we actually look, we use the, um, the LIDAR sensor on the car, which is the laser scanner, to detect the road just based on, on the features of the road, much the way a human would look, where, where we want to see the road, we can differentiate the road from the surrounding area because it's much smoother and much flatter than the other area without relying that there'll be uh, lines on the edges. Why not uh, harvest data from existing drivers? You know, if you work for a Toyota, um, why not put something on the cars that uh, when people are in, on the road, there's, there's a camera that or sensors that take in driving conditions. So if you have people that are in a rural area and they drive these same roads, you know, 10,000 times, they create the data for the for the other cars to use when they go into autonomous mode, you know? Yeah, so data-driven, data-driven approaches is actually definitely something that we'll use. Uh, we don't rely that we're going to have data from exactly the same area where we want to drive. 
because then the requirements for the size of the data set become much larger if you have to have video of every single road in the country before you can drive there. Mm. But we do yeah. we do assume that we we could have training data and and we actually you know absolutely will use that to train the systems in order to be able to successfully segment out the roads in the surrounding area. So this I mean this has got to use AI, right? Like you said training data and uh, the car eventually figures out what to look for, what features will tell it it's on the road or it's off the road and all that. Exactly. And actually, in the distributed robotics lab, we have multiple projects that are working with our self-driving platform. And one of the one of the projects is called end-to-end -end driving. Um, and you can see some papers uh, if you want to read more about it. They're already published online. But those projects use uh, use data to do the entire driving task to learn it completely from the data. So you just exactly like you said, you take video of humans driving and you use that to learn how to drive straight from the beginning. Whereas in my own work, we will use AI and learning in order to be able to, for example, segment the road from the the uh, area which is not the road. Uh, we take a more modeled approach. So rather than doing trying to learn the entire task from data, we'll learn different parts of it, such as segmentation. Uh, but the overall structure is still modeled. Well, what kind of indicators do cars? You know, we've already said some of them, but what kind of indicators do cars use on well-marked roads versus non-well-marked roads? You know, what are some of the factors and the differences? So the chief distinction between well-marked roads and the ones that we're working with is actually the map. Um, the vast majority of uh, autonomous systems that you might see in the news, uh, currently they all will use a detailed 3D maps of the environment. And the big difference between driving with a map and driving without one is whether you're trying to detect your position with respect to the road from the sensors directly, or if you're only using the sensors to figure out where you are in the map, and then the map tells you where the road is. Kind of a fundamental difference to the approach. Uh, sometimes I like to think about it like if you take uh, if you take your phone and you find yourself with the GPS, like the way a human would then go ahead and and walk is you know after you figure out where you need to go, you then look up from your phone and look around and see the path that you need to walk and then follow it. You don't just stare at the map and walk blindly, you know, try, trying only to follow what the map tells you. And so that's really well. Some people point. have <laughs> some people playing Pokemon Go or. Some idiots have walked into traffic doing that, but thankfully most exactly. don't. Exactly, <laughs> and the the consequences for that are not always uh, the best. Yeah. Well, I mean, is it is it too inefficient to have a vehicle rely both on the map and its 3D map as well, and constantly check one against the other? Actually, I think that would be a great approach in areas where maps are available, because it it does make a lot of sense that if you have a map, you, you this is information that you could use. But fundamentally. It seems from a safety perspective, and also because it's difficult to actually have maps for all areas, that we should have also the ability to do the navigation without maps, uh, just like people do. If, if a person is placed on a road without a map, even if they don't know where to go, they can still safely drive. Right. Uh, and so that's something that uh, we feel the autonomous vehicles should be able to do as well. So how, uh, how much more work is needed to, to get there? How long do you think it'll be before we have... Uh autonomous vehicles that could drive in just about any condition? That's a great question. And the the answer to it, I think, is very difficult because, uh, you know, on the one hand, everyone says, you know, five years, ten years, but I feel like people have been saying that for 30 years or, or longer yeah. if you look at the history. So so it, it always seems right around the corner. But uh, certainly I think that the, the progression we're seeing is, is vehicles that use maps is coming first, and it makes sense because doing it with maps is an easier problem. And so, 
if that's going to happen, you know, within the next five or ten years, to, to have autonomous vehicles that are driving without maps, probably going to be at least another few years after that. So what's it going to look like, the rollout? I guess, you know, like tractors that plow fields, that would probably be a real easy implementation of autonomous driving, and then maybe uh, commuter routes, you know, buses and uh, other, you know, commuter-type cars, because they travel the same route, those are well-marked. That's probably next or at the same time, and then maybe partial autonomy, like you said, where it wakes the person up when it gets to a condition it can't handle, and then eventually full autonomy. Do you see that as the, the roadmap, pun intended? Or? <laughs> exactly. I think you're touching on, on definitely pretty much some of the biggest uh, the constraints that, that we might be chipping away at one at a time, and, and certainly some of these scenarios that you're mentioning, like uh, you know, vehicles, autonomous tractors in fields where, where the constraint for precision is much more relaxed than on a road. Uh, certainly, in fact, there are already certain projects in really remote areas, such as mining, where, where you'll have multi-ton dump trucks driving autonomously today for that exact reason, because the, there's enough space and enough control to ensure that there are no other vehicles and no pedestrians, so you can actually relax a lot of the constraints that prevent that from happening uh, in the rural areas. But mm. definitely the others, the others that you're mentioning as well, uh, trucking, commercial ventures like that, tend to go first because uh, they have the money and the incentive to invest in these projects. And then eventually okay. ride-sharing, probably the next, the next big one. Well, I guess another factor, too, is uh, in order for these vehicles to run autonomously, they need to have access to a, a gigantic pool of data so that means essentially internet or wireless connectivity. You know, what if a car is driving and that gets interrupted? You'd have to make sure, I guess, you have like really good coverage because if that goes out, that's a problem. Exactly, which is a further limiting on the geographic areas that these that these vehicles can drive in if they're relying on these detailed maps. Gotcha. Okay. Have you uh, seen any data on uh, supposedly how much safer autonomous driving is versus people? How much less prone to error? I have seen the data. I think we, we, it's been it's been discussed a lot in the news lately, um, due to some of the the casualties uh, that we read about. But I think there's you know if you analyze that data, it, it it turns out that it's very difficult to know how to compare the the number of miles a self-driving car has driven to that uh, of a human driver. Uh, for example, many of these miles might be highway miles where humans are also much, much safer than they are in the cities. So doing these blanket comparisons where you, you look at the number of miles a human might drive compared to that of an autonomous car, when the autonomous car is, is driving, you know, only very specific miles that it has been heavily trained on that might be very safe miles. So that could skew the data a lot. And so I think the other thing is that even humans are are essentially very safe drivers. Of course, there's, there's any... Any uh, motor vehicle accident that results in a fatality is too many, um, but it still takes millions of miles on average uh, for a fatality to occur, even with human drivers. And so mm -hmm. it, it becomes also just a uh, there's just not quite enough data out yet to make any definitive conclusions about where the state of the industry is right now. As these cars prol proliferate and become, you know, the, the miles go from the millions to the billions, then I think it will become a lot more clear. Yeah. Any um, surprises or unusual things that you're learning because of your research? You there? Oh, yeah. I'm just thinking. Okay. Yeah, if you don't know, it's okay. I just, I don't know if there's any insights you had that uh, you thought were very strange or really cool or, you know, that you wanted to mention or 
sure that uh, we covered most of them. Yeah, and one thing that's very interesting about uh, trying to teach these self-driving cars to drive themselves is where those failure modes actually pop up. So you, you might think that, you know, we don't have to worry about the texting or the drunk driving, and so that makes the problem much easier because that's where most of the accidents happen when humans are driving. But then when you see something as simple as, you know, a reflection in a puddle being detected by a self-driving car, and so it suddenly thinks maybe that there's a car inside the road or a reflection in mm-hmm. glass or things that people do a really good job at understanding. And these things can, can really wreak havoc on an, on an AI technology that hasn't been trained in those scenarios. So it's always surprising to see how, you know, a little rain or a little fog or a puddle can be you know, have such a drastic effect on a system that is otherwise so reliable. Huh. Like you said, different modes of failure than people. Yeah, exactly. And that's, uh, that's the biggest challenge right now. Very interesting. Okay. Where, where do you see, um, again, this, this hybrid model I talked about where, well, I guess you talked about the problems with it, but, you know, someone's sitting there, they don't have to drive, it's autonomous, but they're, they have to sit in the driver's seat, they have to be buckled, and they have to take over if there's a problem. Do you think that's... Uh, will work, or is there is it just too problematic because people get, you know, they don't have to pay attention, and then to suddenly make them pay attention is uh, too high a hurdle. So there's actually a, another way of doing that, which I think is going to be much more successful than the than the model where we require the person to take control. So rather than having the person guard the vehicle, and this is actually a, a theme of our project here. If you remember, I said that our goal is to allow to build a car that cannot be involved. You know, or cannot be the cause of a motor vehicle accident. And that model is actually the model where the car is watching the human driver. So imagine if the person is, is driving like normal, but the car is always watching, and if it detects that an accident could happen, it can actually intervene. Um, more, much more than just sounding an alarm, we can have it that it intervenes to the point where it will veer back onto the road if the human is falling asleep, or apply the brakes if the, if the person is trying to change lanes and they don't see the other vehicle uh, in the blind spot. Now, these types of situations are actually much better because you could adhere to a do-no-harm model, where if you're in an area where the car is unable to drive because it doesn't have uh, the required maps or the data connection has been dropped, or if you're in a condition uh, such as rain or snow where the car isn't confident in the sensor data that it's receiving, it can simply do nothing. And in that type of situation, the human will just continue driving like normal. However, in the, various, you know, the vast majority of other times when the car is confident, then it can intervene in order to help when the human is suffering from the human failures, such as distraction or falling asleep or impaired driving, things like that, where the car is unlikely to be experiencing those types of those failures. And I think this model, oh. the guardian model, where the car is actually guarding the human driver, is a lot more reliable than the other way. Well, but... You know, what if uh, you have that model and I'm driving and, you know, like you said, there's a reflection in a puddle and the car thinks, oh, my God, we're going to die. It takes over and causes an accident when it shouldn't have done anything. It should have just sat there. How would you account for that? How would you make the car, you know, not get in the way when it shouldn't? Because I've had that happen with mine just in small ways. You know, oh, the car thinks that we're going to hit, you know, I had a steeply sloped driveway and I had to pull out real slow and at an angle because if I went out straight, the car would go and do the brake because I thought I was going to crash into something, but I wasn't, you know? Exactly. It seems like there's problems with that model, too. Exactly. So there, there is, of course, always the, the chance of a false positive. And reducing the false positives is definitely something that's still, you know, a matter of research. But if you compare the models, then a situation where we try to reduce the false positives 
and still maintain 99.99% or, you know, many more nines even than that in order because the car is doing the driving all the time or it requires the human to take over. It's still much more risky than a situation where you're able to reduce the false positives because the car only acts when it's very short. Mm. Of course, there's, there's never going to be a, a 100% guarantee that a car doesn't, you know, not only make a mistake, but also make a mistake on how short it is. And trying to evaluate those uncertainties is, of course, also a a huge part of the problem. We need to know not only, you know, what are you seeing, but how sure are you? What do you think will happen with uh, the law or incentives? You know, I mean, right now already, you know, your insurance is lower if you have anti-lock brakes. I guess that model with the guardian model, insurers will probably say, all right, you know, we'll give you better rates if you do that. But what about in the future? Do you think that um, driving yourself will be illegal unless you have to intervene? You know, will it, you think autonomous driving will be required? Or where do you think this is going? So that's actually the really great thing about insurance companies, right? They have they have actuaries and they've got people who do the statistics and they know uh, with a tremendous amount of data and a tremendous amount of certainty how well a system actually works. That's why they can price, you know, they can price you based on your previous driving history, based on your age, based on your location. And I'm sure that they're going to be the first ones to actually know how good are these self-driving cars. And when they start giving a price break, if your car is self-driving, to me, that's an indicator that that's where you should be going. Okay. Well, very good. So what's, uh, you know, for interested parties, I don't know if you're able to collaborate or talk to them, but uh, if people want to learn more or perhaps interact with you or your lab, what's the best way for them to get in touch? So they can definitely contact me through the website. Our website, if you just Google CSAIL, that sounds like a boat, but it's not. It's the Computer Science and Artificial Intelligence Lab at MIT. And if you're interested in this specific project, there's actually a separate website, uh, which is for Toyota CSAIL, which is toyota.csail.mit.edu. And we have pages there describing uh, all of our our various work as well as our publications. Very cool. Teddy, thanks for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Richard. It's it's really great um, that you guys are so interested in our work, and thanks for having me. You have been listening to Almost Here, Around the Corner Future Technology Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Subscribe to this podcast, post to review, to discover more future technologies that are poised to transform our lives for better or worse, such as Bitcoin, artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more.